Please turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5. Two weeks ago, we considered the text immediately preceding this text, in which we noted that verses 17 through 20 of Matthew chapter 5 serves as somewhat of a load-bearing wall. It bears a lot of weight when we think about the Word of God as a whole and how the Scriptures fit together. They are fulfilled in the person and the work of Jesus Christ. And if you recall, we noted that Matthew is a gospel of fulfillment. Fulfillment. Chapters 1 through 4 are written in such a way that we are undeniably transfixed with the way that the life of Jesus, in particular, his unmistakable miraculous birth, his departure and return from Egypt, his baptism by John and his triumph over Satan in the wilderness, all these things fulfill all righteousness as the law and the prophets foretold and as Jesus states before his baptism. So we're primed and ready to hear in chapters 5 through 7 now, the Sermon on the Mount, the very words of God's Son, and in particular, how He understands His own authority in relation to all the authority that came before. So let's read together to get to where we need to be in verse 21. Let's begin in verse 17 of Matthew chapter 5. Jesus writes here, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly, I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, Unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Verse 20 is very significant as we transition now into the portion of the Sermon on the Mount that is oftentimes referred to as the six antitheses. The six antitheses. Now, it's given this name because Jesus gives six examples that follow the pattern that you're probably aware of. You have heard it said, and then he gives a thesis or some Old Testament teaching. And then he follows it up, but I say unto you the antithesis, antithesis. And that, that's sort of how this nomenclature was formed. These examples deal with the following matters that we'll be addressing in upcoming weeks. Anger, lust, divorce, taking oaths, retaliating when sinned against, and loving one's enemies. And in each case, this thesis is provided, some quote of an Old Testament extrapolated teaching, and then the antithesis. But as we'll see, it's not exactly that Jesus has, provi has provided this truly antithesis. In fact, that's probably a pretty poor term for what, what Jesus is seeking to do. Rather, he's seeking to provide a fully-orbed, correct understanding of that particular teaching. So a, a corrective, if you will, on the matter at hand. So as we read earlier, verse 20 serves as a very significant lead-in as we consider verses 21 all the way to, to verse 48 
of chapter 5. So it's very likely that the, the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees was the very thing Jesus intends to set aright. That's the very bone that he has to pick, he might say. So before we track any further, though, we need to answer this question. What exactly does Jesus intend to correct? What is he up against? What does he have in mind here? Is Jesus saying the Old Testament itself is in need of a facelift? Or like an old version of a computer application in need of an update to work out some of the bugs? Is he saying the Old Testament is now dusty and irrelevant? And since he has arrived, he's here to set the Old Testament straight. Of course, it was not only because it was just about monitoring people's outward behavior, right? Or is Jesus saying the Old Testament, as it has been taught to you and modeled before you by the religious rulers of the day, particularly those mentioned in verse 20, this is in desperate need of correction. Since the scribes and the Pharisees position themselves in such a way, there was indeed a huge need for correction. Since the need to possess a righteousness that exceeds the righteousness of these individuals is of utmost importance, Jesus begins to now evaluate several of their distortions and misrepresentations of the Old Testament. It's my opinion that this second view is, is the correct way we ought to look at this. But for what reasons? Well, first, it seems highly incongruent for Jesus, just three verses earlier, in the text we just read together, to affirm in the most emphatic way possible the Old Testament's enduring authority and validity for the people of God. He writes, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. And for him to then completely begin to then dismantle it verse by verse, that doesn't make any sense. Secondly, the immediate context that we're looking at here seems to cue the reader that there's a certain polemical argument that's underway. There's a sort of teaching that's about to ensue that Jesus names the scribes and the Pharisees for exhibiting a form, a kind of righteousness that is clearly insufficient and can't get it done to get someone to the kingdom of heaven. It's not able to get us there unless you exceed the righteousness of these unbelievably outwardly righteous people. You will not be with God in forever and eternity. Thirdly, though, the way Jesus introduces these six teachings in verse 21 all the way through 48 is peculiar. Although it's possible that this is just simply a standard Jewish rabbinical way of speaking, Jesus does not use the phrases he normally uses when re referencing the Old Testament. In Matthew's Gospel alone, when, when Jesus refers to the Old Testament, he regularly uses that phrase, it is written. You remember that? You see that all over? It is written. Or he might say, Moses commanded, and then give whatever teaching. But here, why this switch now to what is authoritatively written to now what you may non-authoritatively 
have heard. You have heard. Perhaps he's alluding here once more to the skewed oral teaching of these religious rulers of the day. We could begin to evaluate each of these six antitheses in verse 21 through 48 in order to demonstrate this, but that's just not our aim this morning. So to briefly summarize, it would appear that Jesus intends to, what he intends to do is to set the record straight. The true meaning of the law, that is what God always intended it might mean for his covenant people. Jesus is not saying the Old Testament was all about the outside, whereas I'm all about the heart. No, 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 no. The Old Testament was always designed, always to cause God's people to say like David in Psalm 119, Oh, how I love your law. It is my meditation all the day. How sweet are your words to my mouth, sweeter than honey to my lips. What's he talking about? He's talking about John 3.16 or a favorite New Testament text. He's talking about the law. And it's, it's the sweetest thing he can imagine. He loves it that much. So unless we trend to think in that direction as well, the Old Testament, huh, that's just sort of, it's all negative. It's just, I don't like to read it. Not so. Not so. The problem in Jesus' day was that these religious readers had so hijacked, twisted, and distorted the Scriptures so as to do what they wanted to do and to feel no remorse about it. That's the problem. And Jesus was now going to set the record straight and reestablish the original intent of the law. So now wearing this set of glasses, now let's jump into verses 21 through 26. Let's take these first two verses here, 21 and 22, and see how the sixth commandment is explained and applied by Jesus. Verses 21 through 22. You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. And whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. Let's look at this text right before us. You shall not murder. So it appears that the Pharisees and the scribes were quite happy to restrict the committing of murder to just, just an external act alone. Do you see? While verses 21 through 22 sound in our ears like a perfect recounting of the Sixth Commandment in Exodus 20, verse 13, the second half of verse 21, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment, is more of a general explanation of what will happen to a murderer that's loosely based on a number of teachings in the Old Testament, such as Numbers 35 and others. So, this is very interesting. So what's wrong with this is the question asked by the famous Reverend Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones. He says, what is wrong with this? The answer is that the Pharisees, by putting these two things together in juxtaposition right next to each other, 
he has reduced the import of this commandment, thou shalt not murder, to just a question of committing actual murder. By immediately adding the second to the first, they have weakened the whole injunction. By adding another thought to the original thought, it dilutes and weakens the full import of what it ought to mean for God's people. So, in other words, the command to not murder another human being has always been an issue of the heart, hasn't it? Jesus was not conjuring up brand new thoughts when he writes in Matthew 15, for out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander. These are what defile a person. Not the washing of hands in a wrongly ceremonial kind of way. The Old Testament did not award congratulatory pats on the back for all those who despised Yahweh in every conceivable way, but just happened to not slay anyone in that calendar year. Good work. You, because you didn't murder or kill anyone this year, fulfilled the sixth commandment. Is that really how we're supposed to digest that? Is that how the lawgiver intended his people to digest it? Immediately after Moses delivered the Ten Commandments to Israel, he writes in Deuteronomy 6.5, the famous Shema text, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And these words I command to you today shall be on your heart. God's law was always supposed to govern and enrapture the hearts of his people. And so it would appear that by putting do not murder with the obvious negative consequence of simply just being drugged in front of a civil magistrate or a, a local court where you'd get in trouble and, and the gavel would come down and, you'd, you know, consequences would come. By simply reducing it to that, we miss it all. We miss what it's really about. And it leaves self-righteous people smirking in self-approval, saying to themselves, nailed it, done, got it. Once again, obviously this is something I don't have a problem with because I didn't kill anyone this year. That's just not the way, the attitude with which we're to understand God's law. In verse 22, Jesus says, But I say unto you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. And whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. So here we're given the first of three examples that we're going to look at in in these verses 21 through 26. First, we encounter the individual whose tongue is filled with angry words for his brother. The text sort of cascades downward as the internal anger boils over into insults. These insults have the idea of, of calling someone empty-headed or, or a blockhead or a nitwit or, or just slow in the mind. And the insults give rise to a quasi-swear word in Aramaic, you fool or raka carrying the idea of a godless, immoral idiot 
who lacks any real moral sense. These are unkind words for sure, but liable to hell fire, as Jesus says? Wow. Well, let's not try to soften the blow of Jesus' words. If anger bears the same scrutiny as murder before the Lord, it only makes sense that the same damning punishment of murder would be exacted upon angry speech as well. So just because you don't actually follow through with a murderous act does not mean your heart will not be liable to the judgment. Another kind of judgment, not simply the civil judge or a local court, but a heavenly judge who evaluates the very motives of our hearts. Let's consider verses 23 and 24 for a moment. We read of a second example. So if you are offering your gift at the altar and there, remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before you before the altar and go first be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. So this example involves your average Joe who's a good Jew and he's worshiping in the temple like he's supposed to. Having a tender heart towards God, he's immediately convicted within his own heart of these unresolved issues that stand between himself and another one of his fellow Jews. So what does he do? Well, what are his options? What could he do? He could just as easily have said, oh yeah, I remember that little altercation. But hey, I didn't start it. So, Or, when he gets serious about making things right with me, he knows where to find me. He might say, I've said my piece a long time ago when all that went down, but ball's in his court now. Or, well, you can't make everybody happy, so you just got to live with some people being upset with you. And while there's certain nuances of truth in there where we can't force people into you know, a joyful rekindling of a relationship, don't miss what's being said here. How easily we can rationalize away the law of God upon our lives. Instead of coldly continuing to go through the motions of corporate worship, the individual is told it is far better for him to cease his religious duties and to seek out his brother so he might be reconciled with him. Only after reconciliation is made should he return back and offer his sacrifice of praise to the Lord. Once again, Dr. Lloyd-Jones warns against the very dangerous pitfall for us as believers. I want you to think through this. He writes here, Our Lord reminds us in verses 23 and 24 of a very subtle danger in the spiritual life. The terrible danger of trying to atone for moral failure by balancing evil with good. We know something about this, but we must all plead guilty to it. The danger is that of making certain ceremonial sacrifices to cover up moral failure. We're balancing one thing with the other, thinking that this good will make up for that evil. No, 
No, says our Lord. If I find myself harboring unkind and unworthy thoughts against my brother or in any way hindering his life, then our Lord tells us we should, in a sense, even keep God waiting rather than to stay at our altars. Wow. Wow. Do you see that tendency in your life? I mean, really think about this for a moment. Try to put these dots together. Do you see this tendency in your heart? I know I do. I really do. This was incredibly convicting when I read through this. Perhaps you've had a particularly sin-filled week. It's just been a bad week. One in which you kicked the dog, you drove 25 miles per hour over the speed limit everywhere you went, you bickered with your kids and your wife, and you were irritable with your coworkers. But you see that church work day on the calendar. And you think to yourself, if I go to that and I work hard, it'll help me kind of forget how dirty and rotten I've been to everyone else this week. It'll even help convince my own heart I'm not as bad as I kind of feel. This is a dangerous path. But one most of us, I think, walk probably on a daily basis. It is the default mechanism in our heart to want to try to continually offer just a little bit more than all the rubbish in our lives. We just want to affirm the standing before God that we want so desperately. And we want to do it by just letting the self-deceiving ourselves into thinking we can tip the scales in the best direction to favor us before God. In our contemporary setting, it's as if Jesus is saying, you may want to just stop singing hallelujah for the cross for a minute. You may want to stop singing how Jesus is the first place in your heart. And before you drop that check off in the offering plate and use religious actions as a numbing device, stop. Just stop. Perhaps you should finally listen to the Holy Spirit prompting you to ask forgiveness of your fellow church member when you had that bitter disagreement that caused the two of you not to talk for several months now. Why don't we go and tap them on the shoulder and make things right in the lobby like now? That's really what the text is saying. Can you imagine that level of humility, though? Think about that, what that would do to a body of believers willing to get that real with the need to be reconciled in unity with one another. And before we consider the third example that Jesus gives us in verses 25 and 26, let's not forget the main umbrella under which Jesus is making this application. Folks, we're talking about murder. How did we get to then repairing rifts in our Christian relationships and church lobbies? How, how did we get there? Jesus clearly sees a connection. Do we? You see, when Christians don't make peace with one another, as Jesus describes in the Beatitudes, a slow simmer begins in the soul. Perhaps you know this well. You felt it. You are feeling it currently 
before long, that deep-seated bitterness and hatred towards a person may very well take action, resulting in insult or verbal attacks at minimum and potentially murder if taken to its destructive end. See, for the Pharisees to just domesticate murder to only a physical act was to turn a blind eye to the very first account in all the Bible of jealous anger, which is, of course, in Genesis 4 of Cain and Abel. You probably know the story well. The text states how sin was crouching at the door and Cain yielded to its destructive influence in his heart. His unchecked anger eventually exploded, resulting in the murder of his brother, Abel. Murder is far more than a physical act to be judged by an earthly court. Jesus clarifies and deepens our understanding of the law as he shows us the hellish end to which bitter, angry hearts are headed. Let's now look at this third example in verses 25 and 26. Let's now consider this text. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you're going with him to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard and you be put in prison. Truly, I say to you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. So this example is very similar to the example given in the previous verses. But unlike the worship context of verses 23 and 24, where a brother has an unresolved matter with another brother, these verses speak to someone's relationship to presumably an unbelieving lender who has a considerable debt that, or, or you know, the, the Christian has the debt with this unbelieving lender. The admonition here is to seize the moments before you are drugged before a court and eventually thrown into prison. You have just a few moments left. So the point is, act quickly. Reconcile with him outside of court so he doesn't drag you in, start the process, and then you've got to pay every penny. The point is, do it quickly and do it immediately. Make it right. So in the previous two examples, immediacy is the key. Listening to the voice of God as he prompts us to live a full-orbed application of the sixth commandment. This is not easy. But it is certainly broader than the religious rulers have made it out to be in Jesus' day. And though times have changed, the human heart remains exactly the same. So for a few moments, let's just consider the take-home value of a text like this. We can't even get close to plumbing its depths, but just a few thoughts for us. How does this filter down into our lives? Well, first of all, consider the posture, the way the scribes and the Pharisees position themselves towards God's Word. How did they see themselves in relation to the Holy Scriptures? Well, instead of placing themselves under God's Word in humble subjection to the Spirit with which the law speaks, they became experts at creating additional rules and regulations when convenient, so they might even congratulate themselves that they were not like sinful lawbreakers. 
please turn with me to Matthew 19 for just a moment. Matthew 19. We read starting in verse 16. Let's remind ourselves of Jesus' words to the rich young ruler. In verse 16 of Matthew 19, we see, And behold, a man came up to him saying, Teacher, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? And he said to him, Why do you ask me about what is good? There is only one who is good. And if you would enter life, keep the commandments. He said to him, Well, which ones? And Jesus said, well, you shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness, honor your father and mother, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And with cold-blooded sincerity, this young man replies with one of the most self-deceived, self-righteous responses one could ever imagine. And to Jesus' face, he says this. What's he say in verse 20? The young man said to him, got it, all these I have done, I have kept. What still do I lack? (laughs) Can you imagine? I am the complete package. I'm not sure if you've seen it yet, but I've got it all together. Is in essence what he's sort of saying when he looks at his moral record. Unbelievable. This elicits the response from Jesus. Jesus says to him in verse 21, If you would be perfect, go, sell what you possess and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. And come, follow me. When the young man heard this, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. What happened is that Jesus knew his heart, And this man's heart was laid bare and found wanting. Listen once more as Dr. Lloyd-Jones helps us think about this. It's possible for us to face the law of God as we find it in the Bible, but so interpret it and define it as to make it something which we can keep very easily because we only keep it negatively. So we may persuade ourselves that all is well. The Apostle Paul, as a result of this very process, thought before his conversion that he had kept the law perfectly. The rich young ruler thought he had kept the law because he likewise had been taught it in this way and believed the same false interpretation. That is the same false interpretation that we've been talking about the whole time this morning. That of the scribes and the Pharisees. And as long as you and I accept the letter and forget the whole spirit, content, and meaning, we may persuade ourselves that we are perfectly righteous face-to-face with the law. Boy, those Pharisees. Bad people. So glad we're not like them. So glad we don't look at God's Word as just a list of do's and don'ts and assuage our guilt by comparing ourselves, maybe even saying, well, I didn't kill anybody, did I? Oh, wait. That's exactly what we're talking about. We can so 
easily track right in their footsteps, can't we? I see my own deceptive heart in this text. I see my own love affair with feeling self-justified apart from God's grace. Is that you as well? Are you the type of person that just has to argue tooth and nail in order to absolve yourself that you could possibly have something to do with some sort of rift between you and someone else? Or the very thought of you being guilty of something is just unthinkable. I hate the fact that I just described myself. I sort of wish I could laugh about it, but it's true. Is that you? How do you approach God's Word? It would seem we only have a couple options, right? We can either twist the Scriptures to mean far less than they actually do, like we're pretty wonderful little angels compared to, you know, everyone else. Or we can pray prayers like the tax collector in Luke 18, who beat his chest, turned his eyes to the ground, simply saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. He saw his identity as not much more than that. A sinner. Even as God's redeemed children, we must also recognize we are who we are because God decided to show us mercy. That's who we are. We're not anything more. And it's just fooling ourselves if we try to qualify ourselves in our own mind of why God ought to be happy that we're playing for his team. This text underscores the far-reaching, corrosive effects of anger within the human soul. Now, you might be thinking, well, can't anger be a good thing? Jesus got angry at times, so I can too, right? Well, before you get too excited about that, using that phrase every time you sort of feel perturbed, remembering how incredibly difficult it is to be angry and not sin, ought to Make you slow down. Our Lord is the ultimate example of one who showed anger when he was supposed to against sin, injustice, and affronts against the character and the, the word of God. But when it came to his personal ego, when it came to his physical body even, what does Peter tell us? When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. Our problem is that we normally, normally, almost always, get those switched. When it's our personal ego, we flare up. When it's actually a true injustice somewhere around us, we can sort of sleep at night. Fine. So consider your life for a moment. Perhaps there's been created an atmosphere within your home where everyone just sort of tiptoes around you, so to speak, hoping that they do everything just the way you like it so as to not send you into a fit of anger. Perhaps, rather than emitting outbursts, that's not your style. You tend to harbor 
bitter, angry thoughts that just tend to fester with long-standing negative feelings, be it toward bosses, co-workers, spouses, family members, or, as verse 23 and 24 say, even fellow members of the body of Christ. Children, teenagers, your parents probably encourage you to apologize and make things right with those who might hurt you or the people you end up hurting from time to time in one way or another. Do you know that with God's help, make that a skill that you practice regularly and you learn to weave into the very fabric of who you are. Learn the pleasantness, just the the good-tasting nature of doing that skill well to people that don't like you and sometimes for no reason at all. Proverbs 16:7 says, When a man's ways please the Lord, he makes even his enemies to be at peace with him. Whether it be in sports, whether it be in some other competition, or even within your own home, stuff going on between siblings or parents, God's Spirit will help you love when you most want to explode in anger. God can help you. For all of us, reconciliation oftentimes means addressing the elephant in the room. It oftentimes means walking headlong towards awkward pauses and interpersonal situations that people tend to lose sleep over. It's hard work to do the hard thing of the inconveniencing your personal schedule so as to prioritize making reconciliation a priority between you and someone else. And you know what? Sometimes it takes a lot of work. It's not a one-time, you know, we had a great five-minute conversation on the way out the door and now we're best buds. It could take a while. Then there's the actual conversation. I'm not sure I ever feel more, more vulnerable or in need of God's grace as when I'm walking into one of these conversations. There's no script for them, is there? You wish there was, and you could just say everything you're supposed to, and then you, everything's great. We need God's grace. This is not something we can do on our own. And yet, after having walked through many of these, I can honestly attest to the, the unity and the joy-giving life that happens between two people that look that rift in the face and work through it humble their hearts, and see God transform them. This is what it means to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace, as Paul encourages the Ephesian church. So before we leave here this morning, and during the moment of silence that we're going to have in just a few moments, would you ask God specifically, His Spirit, to put a finger on one or two maybe, maybe there's more, relationships or people that by His grace and through His strength, the representation of God and the gospel in this community would be served and bettered by our small relational repairs that need to take place. God is telling you in this text he'd rather wait on receiving your participation in corporate worship 
in order for you to immediately reconcile with your brother. Wow. Let us be a people who love the Scriptures. Not twist them, not use them, not seek to stand above them, telling them what they ought to mean to serve our purposes, to make ourselves feel better. That, oh, we... we it can be almost a lens that you put on where you, you, you pick up your Bible in the morning and you read it in a way that you go, oh, good, that's not me. Oh, good. I only have 15% of what all this was talking about to work on. Do we have a disposition towards the word of God like that? Or, or rather, do we just say, Lord, I'm laid bare before you. I know there are ways in which I'm guilty of this passage. I may not even understand everything it says. But I am certainly going to overestimate my moral righteousness when I look into this text. Help me, God. Help me to see windows of application that I would never see on my own. Is that us? How do we approach God's word? May God make us be a people who mourn over our anger so that we, like Christ, when persecuted, will rejoice and be exceedingly glad, knowing that our reward in heaven is great, as Jesus said at the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount. So we don't have to be vindictive or hate-filled in word and deed. And may God make us a people who do not just perform ceremonies each week. We sing our songs, we give our offerings, and we do our thing When God's Spirit is saying, now, now, make it right with your brother. Or whatever else his Spirit may convict us of. Instead of using it as a numbing effect upon our real spiritual needs. But in all these things, may we cling to the gospel of Christ. Assuring our hearts that we are not who we are in and of our own selves. In and of our own moral records but because of the mercy and grace of God. And as we scatter in the next hour or so and disperse, would your home group be a time of sweet reflection on this passage? Be humble with one another. Open up. Share. Maybe your words of transparency are going to break a wall down in someone else's heart. And may God use his word to do more powerful things than we even know. Would you bow with me in prayer? Lord, your word is a double-edged sword. It can pierce to the deepest parts of who we are. Lord, forgive us for our underestimating of how deeply penetrating your word actually is. Lord, you were so good at just dismantling the, the warped distortions of your word. Thank you. Thank you for preaching a sermon such as the one we find in Matthew 5 through 7. Thank you for the gift that it is to see our sin and to, to not and to, to warn us against that tendency to have a mindset like the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees. Lord, help us to be a people that in so to speak beat our chests and bow our heads and simply say, God, show us mercy, for we are sinners. May you help Eden Baptist Church to be that kind of a church, 
not a proud, arrogant church that pats ourselves on our back that we're better than other churches or even better than sinners around us. But we know that we have been shown mercy by God himself. Would you give us grace by your spirit to honor you to this end? It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.